gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back to corner kick we said we would wait until uh maybe after the week after the international break to record our next podcast but lo and behold so much has happened and by so much i mean nothing has happened and that means we have got to talk about it i am nathan strauss and i'm joined by a man who allegedly has just woken up from the 24-hour slumber that the usmnt put him into it is nick vinden Indeed, I was lulled to sleep by the USMNT's performance against Saudi Arabia and lulled into perhaps something even worse during their 2-0 defeat earlier in the week against Japan. But yes, it's good to be back on the podcast after a brief week-long sojourn into my other activities, Uh, but it it feels nice to be back here with you. Unfortunately, like you said, we are in the midst of an international break, which I'm sure is everyone's favorite time, but I think... The intrigue of this international break being the last one heading into the World Cup is going to provide us with some juicy tidbits to talk about. More so than usual, I would say. Yeah, I think so. And obviously, you know, it is the last international break before the World Cup. So all of these matches that took place uh, had one meant that fans would have to have one eye on, you know, the next time they would be seeing these national teams, uh, you know, take the pitch. And so it's possible that there are going to be some uh, vast overreactions, especially amongst fans of the United States, England, and possibly Mexico as well. Although I think Mexico's sort of descent into being bad and under Tata Martino has been going on for longer than uh, the aforementioned two countries. So let's start with the USMNT, you know, close to home, although not literally. Uh, They played two games this last break. Uh, one in Germany against Japan, where they lost 2-0. They did not record a shot on target. Uh, they lost possession 50 times in the first half in their own half. Uh, and then the second game was in Murcia, Spain against Saudi Arabia. And they, again, were held without a goal. Uh, this time they did have two shots on target, which is some improvement. But they're in a group with Iran Wales and England and these performances spell disaster for the US and uh it was just a really really tough watch all around. Yeah, and I think if you're going to head into a tournament you want to do it with a lot of momentum, you want to do it knowing, you know, the best players in your position. Uh we know none of those the answers to none of those questions following, you know, these two really lackluster performances and the next time we'll see the USMNT is after they've boarded the plane and headed to Qatar. And I think, Nathan, uh, a lot of the issues can be condensed down to this one Greg Berhalter quote um, that he gave to the press while talking about you know, the potential of starting Ricardo Pepe, who did start against Saudi Arabia and was quite poor, as he has been since his move to Europe, Augsburg, and then now to Groningen in uh, the Eredivisie. And he said that he doesn't need Ricardo Pepe to score five goals he just needs Ricardo Pepe to be, you know, a competent player within the USMNT system. Well, 
I ask the question, Nathan Strauss, what is the current USMNT system? Because against Japan, you know, we saw a team that played an extremely high line, a dangerous high line, got caught out several times, really tried to work the ball through the channels unsuccessfully, um, only played 17 accurate long balls. But then against Saudi Arabia, you know, we saw them play a little bit more of a lower block, a mid-lower block, and complete 35 accurate long balls. So the long ball was on against Saudi Arabia. They tried a completely new strategy. Um, Jordan Pifak, one of the highest scoring players in the Bundesliga, still nowhere to be seen. Doesn't look like, by you know his comments uh, before the international break, that he is anticipating getting the call to head to Qatar. Um, if I were fans of if i was a uh, you know a coach on the usmnt or a fan of, of the usmnt i would much prefer to have a player who uh, is capable of knocking in uh, five goals uh, as re- in regards to uh, whatever system greg is uh, rolling out uh, in the upcoming weeks yeah and to be fair this i mean not to be fair this match week was contested without you know jedi robinson uh without Miles Robinson, who I would say is probably their best center back at the moment. Uh, and then without players like Pifak or Tim Weah, who I would hope would, would end up making the final World Cup squad. But, uh, you know, Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman, like I actually think Walker Zimmerman is, is decent. And I think he provides uh, something that you don't get from anyone else in this squad. But Aaron Long, after I think peaking as like a 25 year old uh for uh for the red bulls has been really bad in mls the last couple of years and isn't a ball playing center back and you kind of need that if you're going to be using walker zimmerman who's really good in the air but uh maybe a bit a little less uh adventurous with the ball so i don't know there are just a lot of questions that i have about this team for example why is it so bad given that this is supposed to be, this is the most technical or yes, this is the is most the talented chief, side. The um, chief question among them. Yeah, but I mean, it's just baffling because like, I don't know, Derek Ray had an interesting thought that he posted where he said that the US is held back by, uh, you know, the teams that they're able to play in their World Cup qualifying and that, you know, they don't challenge themselves against bigger teams more often to sort of measure up where they are at. And I think that's somewhat true, but, you know, this team did beat Morocco 3-0 they then drew with Uruguay. Uh, so I don't think there is like a perfect uh, reason for why this team is so bad, except for the man at the top, who obviously was, you know, generally considered a somewhat failed manager abroad before coming back, uh, you know, to, to MLS and, you know, getting a point to the U.S. job after, uh, you know, his brother or brother-in-law rather is one of the COOs of the USMNT. So Regardless of what happens, I think, in the next couple of weeks leading up to the World Cup, and really regardless of what happens at the World Cup, I think the U.S. needs to make a statement before 2026, which will be obviously on uh, you know, their home turf, and bring in someone who is outside of the Federation, who can really understand how to like get the best out of his players and design a system around his players rather than trying to shoehorn players into a system that, for all I know, like, doesn't actually work or potentially even exist. No, exactly. I think Burhalter is going to need to swallow a lot of pride in order for the USMNT to be successful in the upcoming few months. And that's going to start 
with making a phone call to Jordan Pifak and saying, you know, if you continue to score goals or regardless of, you know, if his form dips off a little bit, you will be one of the people on the plane to Qatar. Because one of the things that, you know, say whatever you want about Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley and Jurgen Klinsmann, they knew that paramountly Clint Dempsey had to be on the pitch. Landon Donovan had to be on the pitch because those two players were the main source of goal contributions for the USMNT, regardless of the people around them. And like I said, you know, the system is the system. I, I can't really tell you exactly what the system is. I'm sure there are tactics, people who are more astute than me that can try to piece that together. Um, for me, in these two final tune-up friendlies, it seemed like the objectives were very different. And honestly, like, I could care. I mean, I, I care, but I could care less about the results against Japan and Saudi Arabia. I care about the fact that the performances were so concerning. The fact that, like you said, you know, they were losing the ball countless times in their own half against Japan. You know, this is a team that is going to need to come up against some really technical players in the group stage of the World Cup um, against England and against Wales. Um, and against Iran, too, who are flying right now after drawing with Uruguay uh, as well. So I'm just very not convinced that we are going in with a method for success and also with a coach that is willing to you know, put some pride aside and say, you know what, Jordan Pifak, no, maybe Ricardo Pepe needs to sit this one out in favor of Jordan Pifak. You know, maybe Aaron Long needs to make way for a Mark McKenzie, shall we say. Um Maybe Serginho Dest doesn't need to be shoehorned into this team at left back. Maybe we should allow Weston McKinney uh, to make these long bursting runs up the pitch like he does so well for Juventus. I just think there needs to be a lot of accommodation from Berhalter to the strengths that we know that these players have in order for us to be successful against these really high quality teams that we're going to be playing in, in November. Yeah, and 54 days until the U.S. kick off their World Cup campaign. And while their opponents in their group stage uh, are, I think, highly regarded based on their name, uh, they've actually, all of the other teams in this group, maybe spare Iran, have been struggling mightily as of late. Uh, the only time Wales has won uh, in the last eight months was when they beat Ukraine in their World Cup qualifying game, the game that ended up securing their spot in the group stage. Their last five games has been a 2-1 loss to the Netherlands, a 1-1 draw with Belgium, and then losses to the Netherlands, Belgium, and Poland. So they're a team that's in a bit of a, of a bind as well. And I think Wales are always going to be in somewhat of a bind because there really hasn't been a superlative talent in this team except for Gareth Bale for the last 10 years with Aaron Ramsey's injuries. And I just don't know how... How dare you diss my man Joe Allen like that? Okay, fine. Joe Allen had some nice play back in, what, Euro 2016 for how that team you? that lost to... That Hal Robson-Kanu? Hal Robson-Kanu is not world-class, dude. He's he not a superlative talent. Belgium. Yeah, but they lost that game, right? And Raja Nainggolan scored a banger uh, from like 50 yards out because he scores Listen, one of those every tournament. He's got a Anyways. hyphenated name. And as we know, all players with a hyphenated name have to be <laughs> of immense quality. Oh, yeah. How about current Wales left midfielder Reese Norrington Davies, who uh, plays for <laughs> Sheffield United? I'm just saying, Wales are not, uh, you know, any great shakes at the moment either. 
And prior to about the 68th minute of their second game last week against Germany, England were shaping up to be, uh, you know, disappointments as well. And they have now gone winless in their last six games, winless since late March. So uh, this international break was really disastrous, I think, for for Gareth Southgate. I almost said Graham Potter uh, because, you know, I'm jumping the gun there, maybe eight years for when Potter takes over. But a 1-0 loss to Italy uh, using England's A-team and then a 3-3 draw with Germany at Wembley. Uh, this was also very bad, although in a different uh, kind of more refined way, where at the very least the soccer was watchable. But uh, yeah, Southgate, I think, is feeling the pressure a little bit right before the World Cup too. Yeah, and it's interesting to compare and contrast the issues that both Berhalter and Southgate are having because I think they're quite similar. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of debate around Trent Alexander Arnold and the fact that he was called into the England camp but not used all that much or really at all. He wasn't even in the squad against Germany. Uh, Trent Alexander Arnold, as we know, is an exceptional player if you give him the space to be an exceptional player. And I think with the system that England used with wingbacks, you know, he could be really successful in that system as a creator. You know, he's one of the best creators in the world, has been one of the top creators in Europe since the pre- since the previous World Cup in 2018. I think there's a question around why Gareth Southgate is so loyal to Harry Maguire when you have a Serie A winner in Fukayo Tomori sitting on your bench as well. And Harry Maguire really had a disastrous performance against Germany, giving away the penalty. Uh, and I think it's once again a case of um, Southgate not wanting to swallow his pride surrounding the players that have know shown him great favor throughout his reign as England manager but like these things operate in cycles we know this international football operates in in like four to four to six to eight year cycles shall we say and there are going to need to be times when you refresh you know Euro 2020 was the end of a cycle Euro or the World Cup now in 2022 is the perhaps the beginning of a new cycle, you know, where you need to be thinking about players like Fakayo Tamori. You need to be thinking about players like Tammy Abraham. You need to be thinking about players like Ivan Tony or Trent Alexander-Arnold and not, you know, shoehorning players who were successful like Kieran Trippier and Luke Shaw in Euro 2020 and or the World Cup in 2018 into a system that has not yielded results since that semifinal in 2021 at Wembley. Yeah, and again, I think the interesting thing about comparing and contrasting these two teams is that both of their managers are so stubborn. And Southgate, I think, has had more proven success in his managerial career than Greg Berhalter. And this process that he has led England under has been a lot lengthier than what Southgate has had to do. Although he did just get relegated again. For the second right. time in his well, career, well, yeah, but it's like it's <laughs> different like, kind it's, of relegation. You know, it's but... it's re- it's relegated, but like I, I, as I said on last week's episode, the Nations League is meaningless, and I don't care. Um, yeah. But I do think I just that... think it's funny that you can say he has been relegated with both Middlesbrough right. and England, <laughs> right? Which is pretty funny. Um, but I do think that like there are some egregious things that he has done repeatedly, and that when they were working, when it was working, it was fine, and. Now that it's not working, all of those things have come undone. So England looked really good from set pieces going all the way back to last World Cup uh, and then obviously at the Euros. And that's been a large source of their uh, of their goals. 
And it's kind of interesting to think about that because we all know how like the old English 442 play for corners style really held back the English domestic game in the 70s and 80s, even going into the 90s. So that's one thing that's concerning. And then the other issue is personnel. Well, yeah, and before, and before the game against Germany, England hadn't scored a goal in months. Right. In the several it was international like a, Yeah, it was like a 300, it was like a 300 plus minute goalless drought. And part of that, I think, is also due to personnel. You know, uh, in the game against Italy, Bukayo Saka was deployed as a left wing back. So they played him on his offside and as a defender. And when he came on, he basically single-handedly changed the game against Germany. He assisted the the second goal. Uh, he assisted the rather the second goal for Mason Mount, but he, uh, you know, single-handedly changed the game as I said earlier. And I don't know that combined with the lack of Trent Alexander Arnold in this team. Like I get that if I get if you don't want to play him as a right wing back in this you know back three, but. Uh, I mean, if you're playing for set pieces, why wouldn't you include Liverpool's set piece taker in your squad? I don't, I just don't understand why he is in this squad over, or is it why he isn't in this squad over one of the other players? Like, I don't know, Ben Chilwell, who's obviously still coming back from injury or a Connor Cody who can obviously be uh, replaced as like the fifth center back. And then the last thing is Harry Maguire, who has seen a huge decline in form this year. He was, I thought, really bad again in both of these two matches and when you're playing in a back three as a center back and you're still struggling like i don't know man you kind of need to take some action so i don't know england are england are in trouble but unlike the u.s they have like 18 world-class players at any given time so uh you know over a three-match group stage they'll be fine i think right but even then i think a lot of the players that southgate i almost said burhalter the players that uh, that southgate have become accustomed to trusting such as declan rice who i think has really had a poor season so far with with west ham and calvin phillips who is injured but even if he was available isn't getting a single minute for manchester city I just don't think a lot of those tried and true trusted Southgate guys are going to be primed and ready or available even for the beginning of the World Cup campaign. And there's a lot of questions to answer in the midfield department. Like, does Gareth Southgate bring someone like Jordan Henderson as cover who also hasn't had a phenomenal season with Liverpool? You know, do you thrust a player like Jude Bellingham, who I think has been tremendous, but is kind of untested at this top international level? right into the fire what are you know the answers for someone like mason mount who has had you know a pretty poor start to the season with chelsea i think you're seeing southgate have to answer a lot of questions regarding form and you know his personal preferences in real time and it's going to be interested interesting to see both in terms of burhalter and southgate you know how they reckon with these questions versus the need to perform well at this tournament yeah, and I think the pressure is almost equal between the two jobs because England have a wealth of talent to choose from, both on the pitch and in the boardroom. And I don't think the same is said for the United States, who, with the exception of Jesse Marsh, uh, don't really have the same caliber of managers to pull from should they replace Burhalter, which I do think will happen Uh Unless the U.S. you know gets to the quarterfinals or semifinals of this World Cup, which the U.S. I don't think will happen. 
should look elsewhere and appoint Marcelo Bielsa as their manager. That's my hot take. I've thought so, this for a while. So Bielsa is an interesting one. I When Caleb and I were talking the other day, I said Pochettino, but I think we were in the same vein of, uh, you know, you have to bring in someone who is reputable enough to do well at the job, but also not, uh, not someone who will lead to like a, a Klinsman part two situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, but also who can get the most with what's available, which is something yeah. that I don't think Berhalter is willing no, to do right now. No, because he's a fraud. Because Berhalter's a bald fraud. Like, <laughs> God, no, okay. I'm not even joking. Like, this man spends so much money on his shoes and on polishing his head and his behind-the-back passes. Yeah, the behind-the-back But he doesn't passes. tell people, but he doesn't tell, like, Weston McKinney, like, hey, why don't we use you as, like, a number eight instead of six? Like, if he just spent any amount of time I don't know, man. I feel like there's this United. This honestly, here's another parallel. England's run in uh, the Euros is equivalent to the U.S. winning that Gold Cup or whatever it was, the Concacaf Nations League against Mexico. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Huge pyrrhic victories that meant people wouldn't question the manager until the next iteration of things going disastrously wrong. Right. And even I looked back this week at their run to the World Cup semifinal in 2018. And their only real definitive performance was a result, a good result, you know, a battering of a Tunisia team that were in dire straits at the time. And then they slinked their way past Sweden and they beat Colombia on the penalty shootout. Um, And so there weren't really great performances in that run either, as opposed to, I think, in 2021, where there were a few pretty great performances, including against Germany. So the, the distinct and like, um, standout performances under Southgate have been few and far between. He very much has been like a results-oriented manager, which has been good for England. But I think the expectation now, you know, with the talent pool that he's able to pull from, is that they make a genuine challenge for the final in Qatar. And I just don't know if that's if that's if he's going to be up to the level for that. And I like Gareth Southgate as a person. I think he speaks very well. I think he's a very compassionate and genuine person. I do think we are starting to see the ripples somewhat in his overall managerial quality. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think all of those things are fair and uh, it comes at a time when I think there are other incredible managerial performances that are happening on the international stage, uh, particularly in Argentina who are now 35 games unbeaten uh, who just extended you know, their manager another three or four years as well. So I think the qualities that make a good international manager have always been different from what makes a good club manager. And the U.S. is very much run like a club from the top down. Uh, and, and obviously, I think the USSF is is not the greatest organization ever on any in any aspect of the game. But yeah, I'm sort of worried about... Uh, the appointment they make next. But um, Nick, do you want to look north briefly and talk about Canada's last couple of games? Because I thought they had a, an interesting break as well. They beat Qatar 2-0 and then got smoked. They got they got or they lost to Uruguay 2-0 as well in a sort of hastily scheduled friendly. Of the three teams in CONCACAF right now, the three dominant teams, USA, Canada, and Mexico, all are kind of struggling equally. Uh, with Mexico sort of in a generation that is bad on the pitch and a coach that is not 
super respected in Tata Martino. I feel like all three teams in CONCACAF might end up exiting uh, in the group stage. Yeah, I mean, this could be a pretty poor showing for CONCACAF in this World Cup heading into um, you know a pretty pivotal four years for the Federation as they are hosting the next tournament. I thought Mexico looked very good against Peru, a game that they won 1-0 last week, but then obviously, you know, dropped a 3-2 loss to Colombia. I think Martino is trying to make a very quick pivot into the new guard of the Mexican national team squad. You know, it, it looks like every indication is that Chicharito is going to be left home. Uh, Carlos Vela may or may not make the squad. And so it looks like Martino is trying to trying to do a very, very fast <laughs> uh, player changeover in regards to the, the personnel that he's going to take to the World Cup, which is probably going to be very divisive if you're a Mexican fan, but might be for the best in terms of not being uh, needed to carry these players into another tournament cycle. So we'll see how that goes. As for Canada, I am a very big believer in their structure and the players that they have. It seems like they're always game and they perform above the sum of their parts. I do wonder if in an international tournament, the sum of their parts is going to become increasingly more important. Yeah, and their coach, John Herdman, who I think is an incredible story, you know, starting with the Canadian women's team and moving over to the men's team. You know, this is going to be the biggest stage for him by far and the biggest stage for Canadian football in decades and decades and decades. And I I was thinking that Canada would probably do the best out of all of these teams just because I think they have the best overall structure both in terms of play and organization. However, they're, they also have a bit of turmoil right now in terms of like players disputing with their federation over finances and the whatnot, and I hope that gets resolved well, for and, them. So. And Canada's the only team in the World Cup for whom Nike did not create or release a new jersey. And this has been a long issue in Canada where they don't even make enough merch to satisfy fan demand. Like when I was in Canada, when I was in Toronto in April, I was trying to get... a uh, Tejan Buchanan national team kit because frankly the maple leaf as a badge is a, a really great design touch but they literally just don't produce Canadian national team gear and uh, I think a lot of their players are super frustrated to be fair they could also have ended up with a kit that was significantly worse than uh, you know what they were expecting uh, given how Nike did throughout the rest of the tournament. Yeah. So could have been, yeah, the, uh, I mean, US kits. could have been the U S kits. All yeah. Could absolutely have been the U S kits. Look like a, um, look like a, look like a kind of like a, a highlighter just exploded all over a page. Yeah. But not like a good highlighter either. Um, so yeah. So I, I also think that it's interesting or it's important to remember that international team forum doesn't actually tend to matter all that much when going into a world cup because you can have teams in the past like france who are sputtering or in 2010 france who are riding high uh really france, france are the right now oh yeah or fans right now which is going to be my transition who uh are evidently at any given time 10 minutes away from a meltdown uh and they could still end up going on to win the world cup or to have their players go on strike during the group stage and uh, revolt. So you really never know what's going to happen. And as much as we like to uh, use form as a predictor of future results, 
the five weeks, six weeks between now and the start of, or really the announcement of the World Cup squads is so much time for injury, for developments, for players to have to adjust to playing on a foreign surface in, I think, different temperatures and different conditions and a lot of pressure as well. But uh, France, Nick, uh, what's going on with France right now? Because their score lines have been pretty eye-popping the last couple of weeks. Oh, mon dieu. Mon dieu. I mean, this has been a, a disaster in the French camp over the past few weeks. Not uh, terribly bad on the pitch. Um, they did beat Austria with like a heavily rotated team, a lot of debuts. Mbappe um, scored a banger. Mbappe scored an incredible goal. Uh, Olivier Giroud is getting ever closer to that um, Thierry Henry record, which he might break in Qatar. We shall see. But yeah, it looks like the French national team is going through somewhat of a similar thing that PSG are going through right now and that it really is killing Mbappe coming out to the media and saying things that he shouldn't. Um, he's <laughs> taking the spotlight off of, <laughs> off of what I think Didier Deschamps has created, which has been a very, very cohesive team-based atmosphere. I think we've, we've seen um, certainly in the lead up to the 2018 World Cup and following the 2018 World Cup, how close that squad was. They all treated each other like equals. You know, Kylian Mbappe was fresh on the scene, but was a big contributor. But after the game against Austria, you know, he was making comments about like how he has way more freedom with the French national team. You know, he doesn't need to worry about, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, both on the on the, you know, in the PSG setup versus with the national team. Like he doesn't need to worry about like things regarding like, you know, the personal drama, obviously alluding to the Pogba situation. Um, Pogba, who's probably going to be in the squad if he is fit. Uh, come November time. But yeah, I think they certainly are, are also struggling with the same Mbappe ego issues that PSG are, which I think is okay because I think Deschamps knows how to handle that. They haven't had a total meltdown under him yet. Uh, it's certainly heading there. The image rights situation with Mbappe is getting sorted out now as well, which is very good. I just, I'm, I just think like all of these other teams, and I think we're hitting on a theme Deschamps doesn't quite know who he wants to pick yet to bring to this tournament. And I think for France, that's less of an issue because they have a wealth of talent at every position. But I think you saw players like Eduardo Camavinga, who have been excellent this season for Real Madrid, have not been stellar in the France setup. You know, players like William Saliba, who we thought would probably be nailed on for this squad at center back, given his performances for Arsenal, have been very poor in Didier Deschamps' back three. Um, Benoit Badiashile comes in, you know, after injuries to Varane, doesn't play particularly well. Uh, Sekou Fofana for Monaco comes in to play next to Chuameni. Both of them don't have particularly great games. And so I think there's a lot of young players that France are counting on to perform well that haven't quite done so, that have been thrown into the fire by Deschamps and aren't quite aren't quite ready for that, you know, seasoned international tournament experience. Uh, I think there's still a lot of questions around Antoine Griezmann and his form heading into this tournament. I think a lot of the old heads like Adrian Rabio, I think they're certainly waiting on N'Golo Kante to be fit. Is he going to be the same player heading into this tournament? Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's several questions regarding players old and new for France right now. 
and all of it capped off by you know the immense freedom that Kylian Mbappe has in the Federation right now. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting or funny to me that Olivier Giroud is going to be at least for like three or four years France's all-time leading goal scorer until you know Mbappe catches him in his what age twenty-seven or twenty-eight career because Mbappe is already at 28 goals for France and he's only 23 so barring something going shockingly wrong uh, he'll end up with that record but honestly good for Olivier Giroud he's the perfect kind of player for a national team actually where he's been pretty good for his whole career like good enough to stay in the squad never so good that it would force any sort of controversy um, with another star striker like a Griezmann or Mbappe and a great system forward as well uh, for Deschamps, so good for him. But yeah, I mean, France are another team that will be fine. They're another team that hasn't really changed systems since the last World Cup. Uh, you know, Pavard maybe a little bit more advanced now. He plays as like a, a wing back. Uh, Furlan Mendy, who's been uh, I think slow to start this season for Madrid, uh, but you know, still one of the best left backs in the world is quite good on the other side. But then it's like, okay, are they going, are they going to roll with Kamavinga and Schwameni and have that midfield be, you know, the Madrid midfield? Is Varane going to get integrated back into this team in time uh, for the World Cup or for match day number one? How does Usman Dembele fit in? Because we all know the kind of quality that he provides. And then can someone like Christopher Nkunku make, a, make an impact or someone like Jonathan Klaus, who Caleb and I talked about on last episode, I think France's ceiling and floor is still quite high, but at this point, I'd be pretty surprised, uh, you know, if they do end up going on to win the World Cup, and we'll obviously have a whole, uh, a whole World Cup preview episode at you know when the time comes. But uh, yeah, things are France have that je ne sais quoi where they could just combust at any given time, and that's like right. very French of them. Yeah, and they're overdue for a meltdown. They're about twelve years overdue yeah, for a meltdown. Yeah, you know how Their like last uh, one was the, the ice age. You know how the ice age. Well, really, we could. I mean, the last one could, in theory, have been the Benzema, um, the Benzema Valbuena yeah. sex tape blackmail case. So maybe they're and uh, maybe now they're we've got the Pogba. Well, Nick, now we have the Pogba uh, Mbappe witchcraft case. So they're right. all well, of these minor. About, yeah, I know. I'm talking about like in tournament meltdowns where you know Anelka storms out of the team and like quits the quits mid tournament and um patrice evra is having to play like peacemaker but then eventually like gets fed up himself and like the whole thing like dissolves it at the well like it happened in south africa to the french national team if you want to go back and look through the articles of everything that happened i highly encourage you to do so because it's high comedy but yeah i mean Deschamps seems to be the type of manager who prioritizes squad harmony and chemistry so i don't know if it is going to happen under him, I, I actually have a lot of faith in Didier Deschamps and preventing that from happening. But it is—it's France, and they do enjoy a strike. So we shall see. Obviously, we also should say that you know France's international break this time around was capped off by a really terrible performance against a very organized Denmark team, where Christian Eriksen ran the show, stomped a mud hole in the uh, the French midfield. So a lot of things to to be concerned about if you're France right now. Let's talk about Denmark for a second. Uh, first of all, shout out to Denmark's you know Danish kit maker Hummel, who obviously also make kits for clubs around Europe, but and around the world. Uh, but Hummel released a new kit with basically no um, 
no features. They doled down the badge and their own logo. Uh, and in a statement today, they said that it's because they don't want uh, to display proudly anything that's going to be associated with Qatar. So I think that's an interesting statement from a brand that isn't part of the traditional big three or big four, uh, those being Nike, Puma, and Adidas, plus minus, you know, New Balance or, um, you know, whatever whatever company fills that fourth void. Uh, so I appreciated that. But Denmark, I think, are going to be a lot of people's dark horses going into this tournament. Maybe not to win the whole thing, uh, but probably to go pretty far. They're in a, again, a very weak group. So France and Denmark are in that, are in a group uh, with Tunisia and Australia. Australia are not a good team. And Tunisia are also, uh, you know, maybe slightly better than we think they are, but they then just got destroyed 5-1 by uh, a rotated Brazil team or a partially rotated Brazil team. So I think Denmark could go pretty far. And uh, Christian Eriksen is uh, a lot of fun. And Kasper Dolberg is still pretty good. And I said this in the group chat as well, but Andreas Skov Olsen and Mikkel Damsgaard at both 22 years of age could easily end up moving to bigger clubs pretty soon. Uh, so I think Denmark, a dangerous team with with a good goalie and, and a good defense as well. Yeah, I agree. I think this Denmark team could pick up right where they left off following Euro 2020, which I always want to call Euro 2021 because, you know, obviously it took place in 2021, but neither here nor there. I think Denmark have an incredible setup. They have a lot of depth. You know, obviously Joachim Mela was the breakout star from Euro 2020, and I think he could continue to pick that up in this tournament. I think he's a perfect kind of like firecracker player for tournament football. Yeah, Nathan, I think you're hitting on something with Denmark right here. And I I think their coach, Kasper Hulmund, has received a lot of plaudits for the way that he set up his team for that competition. And I think he's also, he's got the bona fides to be a great tournament manager for them as well. Yeah, he was the manager of that really good Norge Island team that played Manchester United uh, in the Europa League, the games when... Uh... Marcus Rashford scored his first couple of goals when he was that late injury fill-in. And Nick, I'm reminded of the fact that we actually watched those games together on my old crappy Chromebook in the library our junior year of high school. So time really does fly. Uh, But yeah, I'm relieved the international break is over because now we've got some jam-packed months of soccer ahead. Before the World Cup, we have six weeks of club soccer uh, with Europe coming back, I feel a little bad for all of these players, but we've got Bayern Leverkusen this weekend on Friday, uh, the North London Derby, a huge North London Derby on Saturday at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, Sevilla take on Atleti this weekend. Uh, so much is in store. And uh, that's before we even get into the European fixtures for next week with Liverpool Rangers, Ajax, Napoli, etc., etc., etc. But Nick, do you want to preview or do you want to give me your take on what's going to happen in the North London Derby this weekend? I think, ooh, oh, I hate to say it, Nathan. I'm feeling a classic Antonio Conte snatch and grab from this game. I think Conte sets up to draw Arsenal in deep. And I think players like our favorite man, Richarlison, get the job done on the break. Perhaps a classic Harry Kane goal in this fixture as well. I think Arsenal will score. I think it'll be 2-1 to Spurs. However, I do believe that Spurs are going to come out of this game with the three points. 
Yeah, I think I personally think that Arsenal are going to really struggle in this game. Uh, I don't know. I think, you know, Thomas Partey and Odegaard and possibly Zinchenko are all still doubtful. And Kieran Tierney had to come off Scotland's last game with a head injury before halftime. So it's possible that Arsenal are going to be without a number of key players. And obviously it would be unfortunate to lose a game against Spurs. It's always terrible. Uh, But I'd feel a lot better if the team that loses to Spurs is without four starters because there is such a cramped schedule coming up that it's much more important to get through this stretch of, uh, you know, home to Spurs, home to Liverpool, uh, and, you know, really take all of the points available when Arsenal played Leeds, Southampton, Forest, Chelsea, etc. So I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be a little dicey, especially with, uh, you know, European fixtures every week for the next five weeks. And then an EFL fixture, um, right before the world the World Cup break, but uh, I'm trying my best to be level headed about what I think is going to end up as an Arsenal defeat. So uh, they've done a good job of giving themselves some room to fall with their first seven games of the season. Uh, Nick, where do you where do you rate Liverpool a- a- and their squad at right now uh, coming out of this international break? Certainly better than it was heading into it. Ibu Kanate has been declared fully fit. Looks like he'll be ready to go for this weekend against Brighton, potentially. Virgil van Dijk has played exceptionally well for the Netherlands in this international break. I think the Netherlands are a team that you know we should probably talk about in future episodes as under Louis van Gaal, they're starting to play some really innovative stuff as well. Who would have thought? Uh, but yeah, I think players are coming back into fitness. Diogo Jota didn't play as much for Portugal due to you know him feeling like he needed some rest and uh, I think he understands that this is going to be a pretty pivotal few weeks for Liverpool to accumulate excuse me I think this is going to be a pretty I think well all right let me try that again edit that out I think Jota understands that this is going to be a pretty pivotal few weeks for Liverpool to accumulate as many points as they can before the World Cup break. They have a lot of catching up to do, obviously, but I think with Konate coming back, with Jota coming back, Thiago has not played as much for Spain, uh, less miles on the legs for him. Uh, Curtis Jones coming back, hopefully. I think there are a bit more options for Liverpool in these upcoming games. And uh, a first test for Roberto De Zerbi's Brighton at Anfield this weekend. Yeah, Caleb and I talked a bit about the Deserby appointment. Uh, not the easiest way to open up your uh, to open up your Premier League account, but uh, admittedly, he has had time on the training ground, and Graham Potter has had a lot of time on the training ground as well to try and implement some new tactics, some new structure. Uh, is there anything else that you want to hit on before we say adieu before a week where hopefully some more entertaining soccer is played? Um, I think uh, Eric Cantona coming out and saying that he wanted to be the president of football for Manchester United this week was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, Cantona, but Cantona has else. evolved into like meme status now where he's kind of like, yeah. I don't know. It's no, just, I'm not saying this to, to knock him. I want to yeah. see, see Eric Cantona be the president of anything and certainly the president of football of Manchester United would be. Uh, no, Eric be Cantona needs to have a sit down with, uh, with Kyrie Irving. Oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah they need to go for like three hours they need to have like a joe rogan length podcast just put two microphones in front of them and see what happens open up yeah. the afternoon yeah no i think uh i think Cantona is probably not going to be making any boardroom appearances anytime soon but 
Next week, we will have actual soccer to discuss instead of meaningless international games uh, before a major international tournament. Meaningless but, international games that we did derive 43 minutes and 26 seconds and counting of meaning from as of right now. Yeah, yeah, but I would still preface all of this by saying that minutes, like, pardon me. right, no, the, 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 the UEFA Nations League just doesn't matter. Uh, it's good for the narrative. Like, we need to have something to talk about. So at least we did, but I was just incredibly underwhelmed by the soccer on display this last week. I hope the World Cup is more entertaining than this. No, I think that's a big talking point, right? Is that this is going to be such a unique World Cup. You know, players are coming into it, obviously fatigue. There's been a lot of games, you know, this summer. We talked about this at the beginning of the season. You know, the Nations League took place. A lot of actual competitive fixtures happened this summer. There wasn't really much of a a rest for a lot of the players. And this is something that I think we continue to harp on on this podcast is player welfare and the overall quality of the products that we're going to be watching. Like, is that going to suffer come come November and December where they're playing in an extremely hot climate. You know, we know there's going to be a lot of temperature controlledness, but you know, how much can you really mitigate the circumstances of travel and such? Like, I think there's a lot, there's going to be a lot less time for them to prepare. You know, some teams are only going to have about eight days to prep for their first match. So yeah, Nathan, I think, you know, in that sort of comment, I think there's a lot to unpack in regards to, you know, the overall quality of the tournament. Is this going to be, you know, a classic World Cup or an entertaining World Cup like we saw in 2018. I think there's a lot of question marks over that right now. Well, before we preview the World Cup, we still have a month and a half worth of games to get through and we will have uh, recaps and thoughts and everything that you would expect with a three-man booth, hopefully next week. But until next time, I've been Nathan Strauss. I have been Nick Kick 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 And we will see you all next time.